community because we have people coming from different traditions and philosophies. And so some of the things that we'll discuss tonight are actually discussions that, even though they seem very abstract maybe here, uh, we're having them like on a Bible study on a Monday night. And you will different people are, are sharing these, these different views. So um, what I'm going to do is, is kind of give you just a very small primer on what atonement theories are. We'll go through uh, this set of atonement theories, and then you all could just talk and ask about it. And I'm also curious to hear um, where you guys come from and, and what's new for you in this, what's familiar. Y'all can just bat them all around. So uh, the short of it is atonement theories are designed to answer the question, how do we reconcile humanity back to God? So last week, uh, I believe we, we did address uh, sin. There's a problem. Uh, sin separates uh, humanity from God. Uh, and so atonement literally actually is, uh, uh, I think from the old English, uh, is at one it's in, normally I hate those things because they're they're really cheesy and they're not actually true. This is actually true. It is at, atonement actually does mean to make one again. Um, and so, what are you making one? Humanity and God, because we believe that humanity and God were in union because of sin. We have fallen apart. And atonement is how we describe what Jesus did in order to bring us back in union with God. Um, typically. Uh, Whatever church denomination we are raised in, we are only given one, maybe two, views of atonement. So you grow up in church, no matter what denomination you're from, and the idea of atonement theory doesn't really come up to you because you're just told, oh, this is what Jesus did on the cross. And, and so when someone says, oh, there's atonement theory, you're like, no, 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 like, I, there is just the atonement. But really what your, ever, your understanding of atonement is, is usually one of many theories that has existed throughout the church. So odds are, as you're listening today, you're going to hear one or two of these and go, well, yeah, that's the one I was told growing up. And it's true. It's just one of many in the church. The second thing I'll add is that we're looking at these atonement theories. We should not look at them as exclusive of one another or necessarily competing. And by that I mean, I don't recommend you just looking at this going, this is my favorite, this is the one I like, and I'm gonna throw out all the others. These are generally speaking, complementary towards one another. And so they, you don't have to pick one to the exclusion of another. You can actually be like, I like this one, I like this one, I like this one. These are all been held by the church at different points in history as helpful for understanding the work of Jesus. Um, we can get into some more details later on which ones I would say are more orthodox or more comprehensive. Uh, there's a, a distinction between a number of these atonement theories that are uh, called objective and subjective atonement theories. Objective atonement theories are ones which say that there is a new state change spiritually between God and people, whereas subjective atonement theories say that it is primarily about um, persuading or inspiring people. So it's, it's, uh, it has less of a, an objective state change and more of a, a change within you. Um, I'm going to recommend personally that you uh, at least like one objective one. Uh, you can like some subjective ones as well, but the objective one is going to be important in terms of the spiritual metaphysics. Uh, but with that, let's go into them. I'm going to, do we all have Bibles? Because we're going to do some scripture tonight. Glowing Bibles work as well. I will, I'm going to call upon you all, and I'm just going to, uh, I think we have seven of the, no, eight of these, nine of these, eight, um, two, four, six, seven, okay, seven of these, 
And so we have enough guys here. All of y'all can just pick, uh, get some scriptures. So if I'm going to call upon you, uh, I'm just going to go down here. Uh, the ransom scriptures, the recapitulation scriptures, the satisfaction scriptures, the moral influence scriptures, the penal substitution subscription uh scriptures the christus victus victor scriptures and the scapegoat scriptures um you will be tasked with reading those tonight and sharing with the group so you have now been warned in advance and i'm picking on spencer first yeah. because he's got to do bible drill and find mark 327 and mark 1045 in short order but as he does that let me fill you in on ransom the ransom theory of atonement is the first historically speaking understanding of atonement developed during the second century formally it has roots in a theologian named origin and also augustine of hippos um augustine uh he's known for propagating as well but he's in the fourth century origin the second century came up with it um, the major way of defining the problem within ransom theory is that satan has humanity imprisoned to its doom um, basically, you know, you think of the garden story, we gave ourselves over to the power of Satan. So Satan has got us in a bind. He like, he's got our souls. We sold our soul to the devil kind of thing. Uh, so Satan's in charge, but the solution then the atonement, the work of Jesus is that Jesus then baits Satan with his own life. Like Satan's looking at Jesus going, Ooh, I can get the son of God. Yeah. I will make that deal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for him. And then Satan, thinking he has defeated Jesus in his death on the cross, Jesus then goes in and basically punches Satan in the face, liberates a bunch of people from Satan's power, and says, ah, I tricked you, Satan. I have won. Um, and if you're like, this sounds kind of weird, it's actually very popular within a lot of Christian um, imagery. If you've ever seen The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's The Narnia, that is... I mean, the, the, you got the, the, the white witch and Aslan. Aslan makes a deal to let the, the kids go free. And, and, the, and the witch takes Aslan and kills him instead. And then, of course, he resurrects and defeats everyone and liberates the Narnia. So this is, this is something that's been going on a long time. Um, and uh, as strange as it might be, uh, I mean, yeah, I say the metaphor is like a hostage res- rescue by Rambo. That's, I mean, if you want to... You want to go back to those good old, you know, 80s films. That's basically how you're picturing Jesus taking on Satan. Uh, but there is actually very strong biblical warrant for this. So, Spencer, give uh, our two yes, scriptures. Sir. Yes, uh, I'm going to pick up Mark 3, starting verse 26. This is the New Living Translation. It says, And if Satan is divided and fights amongst himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. When Jesus says this, the strong man is Satan. Jesus is, he refers to himself as the robber. Jesus is the robber breaking into Satan's house, plundering his goods, and his goods are us. Mark ten forty-five. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his right life as a ransom for many. A very direct uh, statement about Jesus's mission. Uh, and again, both are found in Mark. Uh, you also see in these atonement theories, I've included some uh, tongue-in-cheek 
quirks to each ransom theory. This is to challenge you to think that not one uh, theory is going to be completely sufficient. And so the, I would say the major quirk with ransom uh, theology is that it gives Satan a ton of power sometimes or legitimacy. And so there's been, a, I think, a fair critique on ransom theory that says, wait, 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 you know, like, why does God have to, like, make these deals with Satan, even if it's to like trick him and overpower him, like why does, why does God got to get on Satan's level? Um, and so some critics have said ransom theory in some forms and fashions gives too much uh, power, authority, or legitimacy to the devil. Uh, and that's why you're going to see some other claims about atonement theories. So the next one we will go to is also developed during the early church. I say early church, you know, in the fourth century or earlier. Uh, this is called the recapitulation theory. Uh, it was begun to be developed by um, Irenaeus, um, or Irenaeus, I'm sorry, and then really crystallized by Athanasius of Alexandria, who's considered uh, the, the defender of orthodoxy. This guy was pretty... Can I say badass on this podcast? He, sure. he was a theological badass. Um, so what is the problem uh, as recapitulation theory describes it? Well, because of sin, humanity since Adam is on this inevitable path towards disintegration and death. Everything is just falling apart to the point where one day it will just collapse completely. Both our souls, our society, etc. The solution then is that Christ on the cross enters into sin and death in order to reverse death as the new Adam that restores humanity to a life-giving relationship with God. Um, and so the, the metaphor, which is strangely uh, maybe more applicable right now, given our times, is that Christ is the, the vaccine or the anti-venom to this, this condition, this disease, this virus that is sin. Uh, and of course, um, there are a number of uh, scriptures, but First Corinthians I, I found particularly helpful. So, give it a read, sir. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all, will all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. There you go. So all death enters the world through Adam. Christ becomes the new man, the new Adam, who brings us all back into life with God, reversing the, the terminal effects of this virus known as sin. Um, so yeah, pretty popular in the church. Again, early church. The quirk in it is, uh, particularly if you come from an evangelical culture, when you read about recapitulation theory and this atonement, there's almost no mention of Satan. Uh, there's almost no mention of hell, uh, and there's no mention of wrath. Uh, it, it, it is some, in some ways, very, you read Athanasius, and you're like, where did all these other concepts go? And he really just doesn't mention them. There's a little bit of Satan like, as a character, but he really dismisses him, uh, especially in comparison to Ransom. And there's really no conception of hell um, or God's wrath. It's very much a, a self-induced well, like a virus, and we're all dying, and God's going, uh, in Athanasius' words, he's like, God looks at his creation and goes, oh, my poor creation, you guys are, you guys are toast if I don't rescue you, here's my plan. Uh, it's, a, it's a very different motivation, uh, the way that Athanasius describes God in recapitulation atonement. 
All right, those are your two early church theories, but there are going to be many more. So now we're going to switch over. Uh, many hundreds of years go by. This is the scholastic and reformational era. So this is the peak of like Catholic thinkers and as well with the Protestant Reformation. So this is they're going to kind of uh, overlap. Strangely, a lot of Protestant thinking is actually borrowed from the peak of Catholic thinking. Uh, it's just going to be kind of repositioned uh, in some ways. But the first one is uh, satisfaction theory. So this is developed in the 11th century by a guy named Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, he says humanity's problem is that sin creates an unpayable debt to God. Our sin has created such a debt that we could, no matter how good you are, you could never pay it back to God. So the solution is that Christ pays your debt on the cross with infinite merit or honor. Uh, and, and God accepts that pay, uh, payment and says, you, your debt is clear. You are good to go. Uh, and now you can be back in relationship with me. Uh, the metaphor, the IRS cancels a lifetime of back taxes. You're like totally screwed. You're like, the guy from like Blade, you know, the, uh, Wesley Snipes. <laughs> yeah, West, you were Wesley Snipes, and the government's like, all right, your your back taxes are canceled, and you're like, oh, I I'll, I've never been able to do that without that kind of level of of debt forgiveness. Um, a good scripture is Colossians two thirteen and uh, fourteen. Let's give it a read. Yeah, very direct. If you got debt, it is it is forgiven. Um, so yeah, very straightforward. Um, it became a, a very popular theory, um, and it's still. Uh, you might imagine this is. You've probably heard this in some extent in your churches before. This is this is why you're going to see why this is connected to Reformational theology. Uh, the weird quirk about it is, Anselm developed this based on feudal honor systems kind of a weird way to like he, he was viewing everything in terms of um, you have your lord of the estate and the lord is deserving of honor and if you a non-noble uh, offend your lord well that actually is even more grievous than uh, two equals offending one another and so he says like god is like the lord and you are the little peasant and you have offended the lord and therefore there is no way that you can ever make recompense for the offense that you have given your king um, and so it is a little odd that it is built on kind of a system of of honor and offense and feudalism uh, it, it can be modified but that's its original origins Next, this is actually, now, moral influence theory is interesting because you'll notice the timeline. Uh, 11th century satisfaction theory came out, 12th century moral influence came out. This theory is actually in opposition to satisfaction theory. So satisfaction theory is hot. Everyone's teaching it. And then Peter um, Abelard is like, mm, nope, don't like it. And so he actually creates moral influence theory as a pushback against satisfaction theory. Uh, so this is what most of these are not in competition with one another. The moral influence theory is. Um, so he says, look, the problem is humanity is lost and we are ignorant. But the solution is that Christ comes and demonstrates perfect love in his entire life, perfect love all the way to the cross. And when we see that kind of love demonstrated in front of us, that changes our hearts. That compels us 
to repentance. Um, a metaphor, I was really struggling on this one, but if you've seen Dead Poets Society, it's kind of like John Keating, the teacher, where it's like, it gets all, at the end, everyone's like, he, he gets toasted, he's fired, but it's like, my captain, my captain, and all these kind of like wayward students that he first encounters have completely been transformed by his sacrifice and his love, and now they have the same love that he has uh, because he has lived so sacrificially for them uh, and at the cost of his own career. So uh, Christ is like a John Keating character. Uh, and yes, there is uh, some scripture for this. So let's check out First uh, Peter 2.2 2 and... Gospel of John 15, 12 through 13. Yeah, Peter, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. There we go. John 15, 12. John 15, 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I can. So moral influence there, it looks at a lot of these scriptures where it's saying it's about following Jesus' example. And when you see Jesus' example, that will inspire you to change. Uh, the major quirk with moral influence theory is uh, that the cross becomes, it sounds odd, but I think it's accurate, masochistically unnecessary. The cross is not something that Jesus had to do. The cross is something that Jesus chose to do. He wanted to do it as a demonstration of love. Not because he was like, well, this must be done. He's like, I think this is going to be the way to impress people the most. Um, so this does get into the idea that God is a little masochistic. And he's like, yes, let me show you how much I can suffer for you. And then you will be so inspired to change. It's a little weird when you think about it. Uh, but he was trying to push back on a very rigid honor debt system that uh, Elmsum had put forward in his satisfaction theory. Lastly, in our scholastic Reformation era, this is particularly uniquely reformational, is penal substitution theory, 16th century, uh, brought forward by both Martin Luther and John Calvin. Those are our two giants in the Reformation. Uh, the problem is that God must bring justice upon evil. God is a just God. He cannot stand for sin or evil, and he's got to bring justice upon it. But if God brings justice upon us, that's going to destroy us. So God's in this quandary. He's like, I need to bring justice to be a just God, but I also don't want to destroy my creation. So the solution is that Christ bears God's justice on the cross in our place. That's the substitution part. The penal part is the punishment part. And therefore, because he does it in our place, it exonerates us. God maintains his justice, but God gets to save his creation, his humanity. Uh, and a lot of scriptures for this, but we'll look at Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 23 through 26. giving his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Excellent. So, 
God forgoes punishment on humanity. He puts Christ up, the one who receives that punishment. Uh, even the, the Greek there, which isn't in that translation, but is in others, is propitiation, which is one that actually absorbs divine wrath. Uh, and so Christ acts in that function uh, so that God may actually justify us through the sacrificial uh, death of Christ. Uh, the, me- the metaphor that is, you, I am almost certain that you've heard it if you've been in evangelical circles, is that it is the judge who says you are guilty and then steps down off the bench to serve your prison sentence. And you're like, what? Uh, it's, it's absurd yet amazing all at the same time. So uh, have, we, have we heard this metaphor used before? Okay, this is a yeah, classic evangelical metaphor. Uh, the quirk in penal substitutionary theory is that sometimes people who are in penal substitutionary theory, God is like really mad at you. Like, and you're like, dang God, you're just like, you're angry. Like he's like, God hates you, but he's going to rescue you. And, and this is, I would say, an abuse of the, the theory, but it can lean in that way. Other kind of strange quirks is that sometimes people get really into the blood. They're like, you need blood the blood of Jesus. Like if you come from like a, you know, like a backwoods fundamentalist church, they're always talking about the blood of Jesus. Like penal substitutionary theory gets really excited about the blood of Jesus. And I think some ways that are perhaps kind of unhealthy. Uh, So there's some of the quirks in penal substitutionary theory. So moving then on 400 years, that is kind of the stasis that we have in atonement theories. But once we get to the modern era, a lot of theologians start saying, all right, do we need to like look at these again? Uh, and we get some, uh, one is a, a kind of, I would say, a fairly popular theory. And another one is fairly, uh, I would say, marginal theory. We'll look at, we'll look at both of them. Uh, the most popular one of the 20th century is called Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. Uh, developed early in the 20th century by a guy named uh, Gustav Elan. Uh, but he's... But Gustav in the, in the 20th century, he's not saying, like, this is my idea. He's like, this is not a new idea. He actually is like, hey, uh, Irenaeus said this, Calvin said this, Luther said this. He, he's basically pulling up a theme. He says basically all church fathers and great theologians have uh, advanced this, maybe not in such specific language, but would agree with me on this. And he says the problem is that the forces of sin and evil are too great for humanity to overcome, right? You have, you have Satan, but you also have just evil people in the world, evil systems, uh, just, it, it, the world's a messed up place. And we all go, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of messed up things out there. Uh, by the way, I think he wrote this in the 1930s, so you, he had seen World War I, and he's like, yeah, the world is a messed up place. Um, and so he says, we'll never overcome that. The, the evil in the world is too great. Therefore, Christ defeats sin, and evil on the cross in the resurrection, uh, sending evil into a permanent retreat. So basically, Jesus gets up there and says, evil, do your worst. All the forces of evil, both spiritual and physical, assault Christ, believe that they have killed him in his death, but then he resurrects in victory over them. And so the metaphor here is very much similar to this D-Day invasion by allied forces. Like there's the beachhead, there's this epic battle, and after, you know, you look at historians and say, you know, after D-Day, it was a foregone conclusion. We are in the mopping up stages where now uh, evil is in retreat from God and will never be victorious. Um, Colossians 2.15, which by the way, we already looked at Colossians 2.13.14. So you actually see uh, multiple atonement kind of images placed in even the same text. But Colossians 2.15 is great. Uh, 
he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Yeah, just very straight up. Jesus like, they think they defeated him and he triumphs over them through the cross and his resurrection and puts all those powers, whether it's human powers or demonic powers, to shame in his victory. Um, so yeah, this is a pretty cool one. It's, very, it's, it's increasingly popular. Uh, and the quirk, though, is, is that humans are awkwardly both the perpetrators and the victims. And so it gets a little confusing. It's like, what is, okay, so is Christ defeating evil? And that's the, evil's them? And we're, the, and we're getting rescued, but aren't we the people that also are the perpetrators? Because evil is in humanity. Um, and so some people have said, like, the, it's a little confusing because it starts to say, well, like, who exactly is Christ saving us from? Um, and you can sometimes get into this, this, this quandary of saying, like, well, Christ is saving us from the bad people because we're the victims. And it's like, well, yeah, but are you also the bad people that you need to be saving? And people get a little confused. Um, But it is quite popular uh, right now. And then lastly, the scapegoat theory, which I'm going to bet nobody's even heard of this one, not even Spencer. Um, This one is late 20th century, and I am the least familiar with this, but it's important to mention. Uh, It's by a a guy named uh, René Girard. Uh, and the, he says that the problem is humanity is mired in self-rationalizing violence. Humans just keep being violent to one another, and we will, we will justify it all day. We'll justify our wars. We'll justify our cruelty. We'll justify our... our and he says like, it starts with Cain and Abel. It's like we just are horrible to one another, uh, and we, will, we can't get ourselves out of this self-justifying violence. So the solution is that Christ unjustly suffers violence by us. And when we see that we have killed the perfect, loving Son of God, this exposes our pretense to justify our violence. It is, like, it's the, it is the most unjust act that has ever occurred in history. Christ becomes the scapegoat of our violence. And when we realize the bankruptcy of, of, of that way of looking at the world, uh, it convicts us to reject the way of violence, to pursue the way of peace, and to follow the way of God. Um, And so the metaphor is, uh, close you can get, is DNA evidence exonerates the executed man. So you, you know, the state kills someone who were like, this guy was the bad guy, he did the murder, and then we find out, oops, he wasn't. And then suddenly we have to, it, it would shock us into saying, well, we need to reevaluate our death penalty. We need to reevaluate our justices. We need to reevaluate everything because we have made such a tragic mistake with our bloodthirst for violence and revenge. Um, there's a couple scripture. I won't make you read. Uh, well, actually, yeah, we'll, we'll read it all. It's, it's, it's worth it. Uh, Leviticus 16 is the, the source of the scapegoating. So, and then John 11, 49 through 53. Okay. So, and Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Yeah, so this is, the, he, the scapegoat theory is something that the, the Jewish people did for a long time, where they literally would like be like, the sins are on the scapegoat, and we're placing it on this, this goat, and the goat goes out into the desert. And that was like a symbol of like, hey, your sins are being placed on this creature uh, for your forgiveness. Uh, so it has some uh, Hebrew basis. And then John 11, 49, 53. And one of them named Caiaphas? Caiaphas. Being the high priest that same year said unto them, Yea, knowing nothing at all. Keep going. Is there more? Yeah, it's uh, 53. So now I can't. It's not showing up here. Um, sorry. 
That's right. I can fill you in on it. Basically, Caiaphas is talking to uh, the Jewish council, and they're like, ah, do we, do we execute Jesus? What do we do with him? He's like, look, guys, 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 you guys don't get it. This guy needs to die. Otherwise, all of us are going to die. And so we should just sacrifice one person for the good of the nation. And so it is a prophetic, he, and he, he doesn't realize what he's saying, but he's prophetically saying Christ is going to be our scapegoat. Now, he's thinking in terms of politics, like we don't want the Romans to kill us. But what he's actually doing is making Christ the scapegoat for all of humanity. Uh, and so Gerard would say, like, this is, this is a biblical theme. Uh, the quirk is, dude, you better be involved. You got, you got to really like philosophy to read. Uh, Gerard is, I mean, the, you, you have to read someone who knows Gerard just to get kind of into Gerard's head. Like, he's a hardcore philosopher, uh, and his stuff is, is really out there. Um, and it basically... It, it, is really attracted to people who are really into the idea of philosophy of nonviolence and how that works. And it's the God of nonviolence and the suffering God. Uh, but it, it's a very intellectual, it's probably the most intellectual of all of these atonement theories and therefore doesn't have a lot of play right now within uh, evangelical or even mainline preaching. Uh, but it is popular in you know, academic circles. So, but that one, it, it, it's, it's interesting. And it also I think it's interesting about it is that uh, there is this, component of like the violence against Jesus is not done by God but actually done by us and that's the main point and so there's some interesting uh, concepts with that as well to play with um, but yes y'all you just got your crash course in seven different atonement theories which by the way are not actually even all the atonement theories but the ones that you will most ever likely hear about um, so I uh, forgive me if I've left out your favorite but I think we've covered them all <laughs> Um, so in our remaining time, I would love to hear from you. Uh